This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, well, they have a story. Yet some stories seem more relevant than others. That is to be expected. Not every story is the basis for a movie or a blockbuster miniseries. But our guest today, his story is Rick Torelli. Rick Torelli was on the force of the NYPD for over 31 years. 26 as a homicide detective. He worked over 700 homicide cases in his career, solving 575 of them. Nicknamed Master of the Box, Rick is considered one of the greatest interrogators in the history of the NYPD. Remarkably, while investigating homicides, Rick was also the technical advisor to the legendary series NYPD Blue, one of the most successful series ever, as well as Big Apple, and feature films Pride and Glory. Rick was also executive producer of the documentary series Gotti, Godfather and Son, and Watching the Detective, both on A&E, and five seasons of The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery. Let's welcome him on now. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dustin. It's my pleasure. And Rick, you are a part of this group, this elite group called the NYPD, and you've been with them for a number of years, or you were with them for a number of years. Tell us your story. Well, before I do that, I'd like to commend you for the job you do and what a great show you host, how many lives you've touched over the years and continue to touch. Uh, You're one of the most hardworking men I've ever met in my life. I really never, I've been approached to do podcasts before. I do them as guests. I've never been uh, fortunate. I've been offered to do them the way you're offering it to me, but there were people that I wasn't as well entrusting with as I am with you. I know the job you do, your producers do, and no one does it better. So for me, this is a great honor and a privilege to be partnering up with Mike and yourself and launching this great podcast series that we're looking to do. Well, I'm excited to have you on because as you know, in life, trust is earned. Respect is earned. And some might say respect is demanded. And so when I look at around the world, what is happening, I, I see this climate that that cops are bad, cops are evil, cops are out to hurt every single person Well, but because the narrative of the news. And yet that Correct. is <clears throat> that is not the truth. So what is the truth or is the NYPD out there to hurt people or the or what, what, what is going on? Well, let me start with I, I went on the job in 1984, January 1984. And the climate at that time in New York City was horrible, as we know it to be the crack wars. Uh, Crack was running rampant, as we know it to be. Uh, People were just fiending for their their fix, and crime was through the ceiling. At that time, uh, Mayor Giuliani ran for for mayor, 
he won and he brought in a formidable team, probably the most formidable team you could ever bring in policing, headed by William Bratton, Bill Bratton, who's a legend. Bill Bratton has established and, and started plans and different strategies to make accountability for officers throughout the command. And when I say when I say that, what happened initially, I remember back in the day, nothing, this is no down, you know, down, you know, making anyone feel bad. But a captain in a police department, you hardly saw him. He came out, got his cup of coffee, went to the desk, checked the book, made sure everyone was okay, went back in his office. Under the Bratton administration, there was accountability. And it started from the top. And as a quick example, for argument's sake, say you had a robbery pattern. And the robbery pattern was happening in the evening hours after 2 in the morning to 6 in the morning. His thing was now, wait a minute. Well, why is your anti-crime guys getting off at 2 o'clock? Obviously, you're not combating what you need to combat. So they started what they call CompStat. CompStat then, analyzing all the crimes, picking the crimes and where they're happening, and, and putting teams in those places to combat the crimes that were being that that will be that the crimes that were that were out there and different burglaries and robberies and the, the, even like the 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 in the in the subways and on the streets for prostitution, and that team cleaned up New York City, and put it on a map that every department started to use them as a benchmark to learn how to combat crime, bring crime numbers down, which only made politicians look better. But the only problem with that is these politicians today are so worried about themselves, not the police, okay? They try to make, like, they're, they're thinking about their communities and the people that they represent, which I don't believe they do that either, because, quite honestly, they're tying the hands of police officers today. And why do you think that is? I mean, if, if law enforcement and police officers have done a lot of good, why do they only seem to highlight the bad? Or, let's say, why is the social media community so quick to highlight the bad? Well, I think it's like anything else. Dustin, you've been doing this, as I said, better than anyone, and you know a lot of the answers. A lot of this has to do with the selling of papers. What, what, I'll give you an example. A New York City police officer, a police officer, law enforcement, any police officer. When they come to your home, most times, most times, it's to arrest you, break up domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, they're there to, that's what they do. Uh, when you turn around and not to knock the fire department, when the fire department comes in, they're saving people and they do a hell of a job. I commend their job. I wouldn't want to do their job, but they're coming there and they're saving people. They're not putting people in handcuffs. They're not doing that. So everything is under the microscope of police officers. We go there. We we're the first ones to run into a building. We're not running away. When shots are fired, we're running to the shots, uh, opposed to other people running away, which they should do. But no matter what a cop does today, they're under the microscope. And I believe that to be no support of the community councils, the legislators that are out there. And the only time they come knocking at the police unions, and I was a union official myself, had the honor to be a, a member of the Detectives Endowment Association, who represents the greatest detectives in the world. My brother Danny is currently still on the PBA board, uh, Patrolman's Benevolent Association, with uh, the probably the most recognized police uh, labor person out there today in Patrick Lynch. And we're, we're fighting a battle. Uh, Paul DiGiacomo, who's the uh, president of the Detectives Endowment Association today, that poor guy came in. He and I worked together. 
he came in, he's fighting the COVID, he's fighting City Hall and everything else that's going on. These riots and protests and looters. It, 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 it's our hands are tied in everything we do. Everyone's critical of our, our performance. So it, it sounds to me to be truly an impossible job. That how can you make everybody happy? How can you act perfectly under conditions and circumstances that the average person would run away from, quite frankly, and then be in this moment, and I can only speak for us men, where your testosterone may be at your highest, and somebody is trying to hurt you, or someone's trying to stop you from doing your job, and and you have to find a way to control yourself. Again, accountability is needed, and you're telling me that in the 80s is when accountability began. And and so for anybody that might make these claims of, well, in the 1950s, well, we're not in the 1950s anymore. That to me, you're under surveillance at all times. That everywhere you are, people are watching. So what do these law enforcement officials, what does the NYPD have to deal with? And how many years were you a part of this? See, another thing, I, I was a part of it for 31 years. Uh, another thing when the Marlin Commission started where there was a lot of, you know, integrity issues back in the police department. Hey, listen, everything you learn from the bottom up, you, you work to always do better. In today's society, everyone's trying to reestablish themselves due to COVID and different circumstances. And that's what departments do across the country as well. They try to reestablish themselves. I, I think the biggest thing is community relations. And when Bratton and them had come in and they had this community policing and people interacting with the community, that's a big thing. You want these young, it's got to start with the young and the youth. And if you could educate them and not not always tell them the police officer is bad, uh, stay away from him. You're schooling them more against us than what's out there, the element that they're really facing. And you're making the police officers the element. And that's so wrong. So wrong. You can easily educate your children. I think community things are the best. And it's funny, you, you re- rarely hear about all the things that police officers do on a day-to-day basis when they're helping others. And it never matters what color your skin is or what your what what your religion is. You go in there, you don't get to a call and say, oh, that's a white male, I'm not helping him. No, and there's not a police officer I've ever met in my life that's ever gone into the locker room that day, put on that badge and that, that gun and shield, okay? And went out there and said, I think I'm gonna shoot someone today. I did 31 years. I was involved with, and not to sound crazy, hundreds, maybe thousands of arrests. I never shot my gun. Okay, so let me get, in- so let me get this straight: that there isn't this mindset in the I'm going to use the locker room of man today. I can't wait to pull out my gun and and shoot somebody in their back. That's every cop's worst nightmare. Every cop's worst nightmare. And like I said, 31 years of myself. I never shot my gun. And I I worked in a homicide squad for a very long time, most of my career, where we took down murderers. And we never, I I never did. And partners that I've been with, there's been a few shootings. But if you were to take the totality of shootings in a New York City police department, it's so minimal, it's crazy. The restraint that New New York City uses, I can't go by everyone else because I don't have their numbers. But I know our numbers when I was there, and I currently know the numbers through people that I still speak to. The numbers are so minimal, minimal. 
so that there may be departments, not just in this country, but around the world, where maybe they don't have the same restraints. But when in terms of the NYPD, that that your department, they, they prided themselves on being the best of the best, and even the best make mistakes. And I'll, I'll tell you, it wrote something down. This is the thing that, to me, that, that law enforcement, specifically today, the NYPD, they never get credit for, and that is courage. To me, it takes courage when you put your last name on your shirt and you walk around all day long. There are people every single day that are afraid to tell people their last name. Why? Because I don't know that person. I don't want them to know who I am. That There are people on social media that they they change their last name because they're too afraid. They put some avatar. But, but you, every single day, were proud to say, my last name is Torelli. You put your friends at risk. You put your families at risk. That is courage. That takes a different type of courage. So where did the courage come from for you, Rick? Where did you find it? Because it is scary, this world. We call it life's tough for a reason. Life's tough. Well, I will tell you, I was I grew up on Long Island, uh, Suffolk County, which is a suburb, a suburb of you know New York. Uh, my dad was a Nassau police officer, became a detective. And, you know, like everyone else's father, you, you know, you admire your dad and he would come home and tell his stories. And I always wanted to be a cop, always wanted to be a cop. And then all of a sudden you get that call and you're taking your examinations and so forth. Next week, you know, you're getting called that you're going to go on a job. Now, my brother, Danny, who's 18 months younger than me, went on in uh, January 83 and I went on January 84. And I'll never forget when I was going for my final examinations to go on the police department. And it sounds weird, but I'm in the shower and I'm saying to myself, wow, I'm going to carry a gun. I'm going to have to make decisions and a split decision on someone else's life and safety. I was scared. And if any cop tells you they're not scared, they're full of it. Believe me, when you get that call, your adrenaline starts pumping. You listen, you get a call to a man shot, this, that. When you get there, your adrenaline's pumping. And of anyone that says it's not, it's pumping. And now you have to make that decision, that split decision. And I remember sitting there saying to myself, do I really want to do this? But then given the opportunity to do it and the people, the men and women I worked with that I learned so much from, it was the best they say the biggest and the best gang in the world was the New York City Police Department. That's why they call us NYPD the finest, and they call us the greatest detectives in the world. And I think most agencies across the country try to model themselves after the NYPD, of course, because it's the big elephant, no doubt. So why not structure yourself after the big elephant who's been so successful? But then again, when you had the Giuliani administration and you had a Bloomberg administration in there, they were supportive of the police. You have de Blasio in there now, who's horrible. He gives you the nod and the, you know, the, the, the shake and the nod and the, you know, the wink and the nod and gives you the old, oh, yeah, I'm just, he's full of malarkey. He does nothing to support the cops. The only time he does is when it's for his own self-gratification. When a cop gets shot, I, I, love, I love to watch him. I don't mean that. Yeah. Every, one cop is way too many. But Pat Lynch, when he gets to those scenes and he speaks, and I speak to Pat pretty regularly. And, my who, brother, is, and who is Pat? Pat Lynch is the president of the PBA. He represents all of New York City police officers, 28,000 police officers. He's been currently the president, I believe, four terms now. The man has done incredible, incredible things for the police department. And he's, a, he's, he's such a great speaker. 
when he communicates, it's like, you know, he's, he's amazing. So every police officer, when they get hurt or injured or whatever, Pat responds to the hospital as his duties call. I love to watch, when I watch the administration from the police department, when Pat steps up to that mic and they know that they're their management, and here's de Blasio standing there. I watch de Blasio's, you know what, go, because he don't know what Pat's going to say. And Pat, as respectful as Pat is, he'll say the things that hit on every every nerve. So that, that, he, that makes me ask you then, Rick, that what is it like for those in law enforcement that have other people speaking for them every single day and they're not allowed to, to say what they think or what they believe. What is that like? Well, you know what it is? Pat does represent them as the department doesn't want people just flying off the handle, just going out and saying what they want to say. So, you know, of course, I, I get that. Um, I think the biggest thing today is redeveloping the trust with the communities, working harder to prove that we're not out there to hurt people, but we're to help you as much as as they make it and we're not what i'd like to do most of all if i could get out there i would love to you know this podcast as well develop a good relationship with the with the police departments across the country that's why i wanted to do this because i know your your goal is as well uh we want to change the the climate we want to make it a a better climate for everybody i want the conversation to be the stories i mean thinking back you're a detective I imagine there must be at least one story that never left you, one case that you didn't solve, one family that you saw broken and you couldn't give them justice, you couldn't give them clarity. What is that one case, Rick, that for all time has just been the, if I only, if I could, if I could have that one more piece, I think I could put it together. You know, there's a couple of cases out there like that, but we, we I'll tell you, in New York City, the cases we got, and the, the team that we were together with, we were so fortunate. We solved a lot of good crimes. I, not, I shouldn't say good crimes, bad crimes that became good. And there's nothing in the world that gives you a better feeling than when you know these poor people have lost a child, a husband, a mother. Uh, and to give them that, that, that closure, to go there and actually tell them that we solved it. Um, I could give you one case that really to this day still sits in my craw. Uh, I had a young gentleman, a young boy, four years old, and uh, he, he was he was killed. Uh, what happened, his mom and dad were not very good parents. And the father had uh, taken the, the, the child from the mother and brought him to a lady's house. We believe to be lady. And she was a uh, trans a transvestite. He ends up getting bringing the child over. His name was uh, I'll leave his name out. Doesn't matter. Um, he leaves the child there, and she now has the child. And, and the husband leaves, or the father leaves in the morning, and he gets arrested for a warrant. He, it's around Christmas time. He tells her that he's going to be in jail a couple of days. He'll be out. Can you just keep an eye on Miles? I'll give you Miles's name. And she says, yeah, she wanted nothing to do with this child. And she's a man. And let's be honest. I have children. You have children. Women are built for that. Women are built for that. There's this mama thing about them. They just have a different, a different strength. They just have a different strength than you and I. And how they do it, I commend them all. Absolutely. But yeah, was a man. Had no patience, number one. Number two, it wasn't his child. It was just thrown on him. It's Christmas time. 
the father, of course, is now being told that he, um, you know, he's not coming out of jail. So now she's really stuck with him. And to make a long story short, she starts abusing him. Mm. The kid was beaten, whipped, mm. burned with a George Foreman grill, left outside, left outside in freezing cold weather, minus five degree with wind chill factor. In his underwear on a veranda of the house. Oh, my gosh. It was horrible, horrible, horrible. And the poor kid, after beatings, uh, hypothermia, ends up dying. So now we don't really, we we know in our heart who did it and what the circumstances are after an autopsy and so forth. Now we have to speak to this, what I call an animal. An animal. Absolute animal. My partner Bobby Hahn and I had to speak to this animal. We were in there for almost 12 hours. We have to be your best friend. We have to communicate to you and make you think that we believe everything you did is okay. It took us 12 hours to get it where she, he, whatever you want to call her, had admitted to everything that was done, where we showed pictures of the injuries that that Miles had had sustained. Mm. And I remember testifying in the grand jury. And while testifying in the grand jury, I watched, you watched the the, the jurors and there wasn't a dry eye in the house because of the the sympathy they had for this poor four-year-old child who was just totally for 18 days abused, abused. And at the end of it, it it reunited the mother and, and, and the grandmother was a terrific lady. But I think the mother started to really see the light. She had some, you know, uh, uh, addictions herself. And to be able to see some closure, it, it's a great feeling. And then when you see that this animal goes to jail because of the prosecution that they did an amazing, amazing job on the case, uh, that's the stuff that makes police work very, very gratifying, very gratifying, especially as a detective. That you can you can solve it. <clears throat> Yeah, that that story is one that touches home as someone who has small children. How do you deal with that trauma? I mean, detectives like you for the rest of your life will have those images, have those moments. You've faced evil. There are people that would say they've known evil. You've never known evil like you have being in a room with someone that probably doesn't feel anything about what he what he or she had just done. What is that trauma like living with? What do people live with? You know, it, it, it's funny you say that. When I first went on the job, I remember going to homicide scenes and being like, holy, wow, what the hell? Like, people like, just have no, it, it, it's just crazy that they would just, you walk up to someone, you shoot them in the head or stab them. You, crazy. And I think you get, I don't want to say callous, but I think you get almost an immunity. You know, you, you start to watch it and you, you have to separate your feelings from doing the job. And it's almost like you, you have to have a, a tough, like, you know, you, you can't get entrenched in, in your feelings because you got to make that case work. And at the end, when it's solved, that's when you can finally take a deep breath and say, you know what? Mm. <sighs> okay. You know, I, I, another quick story, another quick story. Uh, there was a young lady. Her dad was a terrific man, he was, but uh, she, the, the young girl, Kimberly Anthonox, lived with her dad. Over the time she had lived with her dad, he always, he was daddy's little girl. She was daddy's little girl. 
And he always took care of me, set her up in an apartment. And, you know, she went to uh, Staten Island College. And she was just like her dad. She was a very nice kid. She was a generous child. She was 20, I think she was 20 or 21, if my memory serves me correctly. And she had a friend. And she said to the friend, you know, they were having their floors done. If you'd like, why don't you? She she had a boyfriend and, uh, and a child. But they weren't married and their floors were being done. So why don't you come stay with me during the time his floors are being done? So they're staying there for a couple of weeks. And she was a party child. She used to like to go out and do a thing. And the boyfriend at the time saw her every night or Wednesday night, Tuesday night, whatever it was. She would go to this club, come home late. Knew the dad would pay anything to have her if he if he kidnapped her he put a team together knew her, her every day when she would come home where she parked the car in the garage and they sat on her and they kidnapped her hmm. so the initial thing was to kidnap her uh put her you know get the money from the father and then let her go well their plan went south didn't work out it turns out that what happens is they take her to a house and it was, it was a vacant house. The people that owned the house were selling it, and they were living in, the, I think, maybe a different, maybe a state difference. I don't remember exactly. Anyway, make a long story short, at which point in time, they took her down in the basement, tied her up. It was March, like probably a little bit around March, first week of March. It was still very cold up here, damp. There was no heat in the house. They bound her to a chair, gagged her, and blindfolded her. So now they called the dad. And they're going to get, they're going to request their, you know, ransom that they wanted. And the father had one of those phones where he would, you would answer and he would say, hello. And you thought he was on the phone and you start talking, but it was like, ah, gotcha. So he never received the full uh, ransom because it was, it wasn't on the tape. The kid that did it, of course, now is living with the door the, in the, in the daughter's house. He starts playing best friend he's helping us do because she's missing no one knows where she is so he starts helping the family trying to locate her in the meantime he sees it's going really bad he's not going to get the money from the father so he says you know what goes back douses her with gasoline and lights her on fire she's alive she's alive and burns her to death oh my god yeah ultimately we ended up arresting him, my partner, Louis P., and myself, Tommy Shevlin, we did it, and my old boss, Philly Panzarella. I mean, we put a, a team together. You have to be, and that's another thing in, in policing. It doesn't just start with the arrest, or, you know, after you get the arrest, you're done. Now you have to prosecute them. And leading up to an arrest, you can't go jumping in. You got to get your ducks in a row. And it's very methodical when you do police work. You, you got to do things very slowly, because if you jump the gun, you, you, you're going to lose you're going to lose the case. And that's what I think New York City detectives do so well. They take their time. They're methodical. They make sure they have all their ducks in a row. And, and back in those days, we had a lot less resources than other departments did. Like the FBI's got resources out the yin yang. We didn't even have hardly computers then. You know, everything was, you know, basically by hand. Looking at photos, you know, when you looked at photos, you would have to go through a big drawer of photos and Thumb through male whites, 20 to 25. You know, now today you go on a computer, boom, boom, you pump it in, you're able to look. And back then when police work was conducted, let me tell you, it was it was great police work. 
And we ended up getting this guy. And it, it, it was that, that case when we came out of the courtroom with the father, my partner and I, the tears that just flowed were just, just the relief and to see the family finally getting some closure. It doesn't bring their daughter back, but at least they have some closure knowing this vicious animal that killed their child is going to be behind bars for the rest of their life. You know what's amazing? That, that you have committed your life to, to solving, to, to finding closure, to giving people their, their peace back to the best of your ability that that is a legacy, Rick, and is a legacy that I am honored to now bring you on, that you are going to have, you're, you're going to be a host on the Life's Tough Media Network of your own show, where you're going to be talking to the top law enforcement officials around the world, and you're going to be talking to them about their stories. What do their departments deal with? What do their countries deal with? Because here in ours, we have problems. But as I've heard today from you, that man and womankind's greatest threat is not law enforcement. That law enforcement is there when you're too afraid to go into your house. If you think someone's there, you make the phone call and make them go check first. Or right. if a building is, is I don't know, under siege or there's a fire, the first ones to go in are, are the, the law enforcement officials that are telling the rest of us, get behind me. That that is a story. Look at 9-11 itself. Everyone else supposed to do what you do. You're running away. 23 New York City police officers lost their lives. 37 Port Authority and 343 firemen lost their lives that day. And yet the That's- news and the narrative doesn't matter which naval cable network you, you listen to or watch. They have forgotten that. They do not bring it up. They do not remind people the good because it is very easy to focus on the bad. It sells papers. It, it gets people to, to watch the news when they can have one thing to get angry about. And that's what I admire you and respect you for, Rick, is that you have this way of speaking the truth to say that there have been moments where mistakes have been made, yet accountability is at its highest form. It has never been higher and it will only continue to evolve. So what final words do you have for people out there that quite frankly may not have been so fond of the NYPD or that didn't know what they didn't know? They didn't know that someone like you, that for the rest of your life, these stories have impacted the rest of your life. I imagine in certain ways that you'll be fighting to remain, to keep your peace because there are things that keep me up at night and I don't have those same images that you do. Well, I think the biggest thing is like we said before, it's, it's got to start when children are young, you can't start off just broad brushing all police officers because in every field is bad. I just know that the people I've worked with, they're not going out there. They're not stealing your money. They're trying to solve crimes. They're trying to help people. And with that, I must say life's tough. But Rick Torelli and the other men and women of the NYPD are tougher. Thank you again, Rick. It was my honor. And again, I look forward to getting our thing and launching it and getting the word out there so that we could get better police and, and police and community relations. Thank you again, Rick, for sharing your story. A hero is someone who rises every morning, never knowing if he'll be returning home that night. That is the story of many of those in law enforcement around the world. Today, we heard from Rick Torelli, a veteran of the NYPD. He talked to us through his story, what it took to rise through the ranks, what it took on his journey. He heard stories that made us laugh. He heard stories that make us cry. The police officer's prayer goes like this. 
Lord, I ask for courage. Courage to face and conquer my fears. Courage to take me where others will not go. I ask for strength of body, that I may protect others. Strength of spirit, to lead others. I ask for dedication. Dedication to my job, to do it well. To my community, to keep it safe. Give me, Lord, concern for others who trust me and compassion for those who need me. And please, Lord, through it all, be by my side. Life's tough. The NYPD, they're tougher. Thank you again, everybody, for joining us. I'll see you next time.